I, I really prayed about what to preach on today, and pastors all across this region ha- have been kind of toiling with this, and uh, do I go on with what I was planning to do? A lot, of, a lot of preachers have decided to do something different, something about dealing with disaster and dealing with crisis, and where is God in the midst of pain? And I just decided that I was going to continue with what I had planned to preach actually last Sunday, preach it today, uh, because we're in the midst of a series about discipleship, about what it means to be a follower of Christ. All this year, we're talking about what discipleship looks like. And uh, we've said already from the very beginning of the year, it means connecting with God daily in worship. It means growing in all the qualities of the character of Christ, and it means reaching others with His love. And Right now, we're in a series talking about those Christ-like qualities, that middle one I mentioned. And we've talked about how the fruit of the Spirit is supposed to be found in us. Qualities like love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. All of those should be seen in us in, in greater and greater manifestation the more we grow as Christians. But there are other things, too. We could, we could preach forever about all the qualities of Jesus that are supposed to be seen in us, but I want to cover three more before we're done with this series. And one of them today, the one we're looking at today, is humility. Humility. A lot of folks misunderstand what humility is. They, they see someone, they see humility as being someone who thinks lowly of themselves. I'm no good. I'm worthless. I can't help anyone. That's low self-esteem. And there's nothing biblical or godly about low self-esteem. Humility is something completely different. And I want to start off in kind of an unusual way, um, a story that you may not think connects with this subject, but I I believe it does. When I was growing up, uh, we lived about two hours from Houston. My parents still live there. And my dad would take us to to one Astros game every summer. Uh, So we'd make the drive two hours on into Houston. We'd get to eat somewhere we didn't usually eat and see the big city. And then we'd go to the Astrodome, remember that? Um, one year we went to a game, I was a teenager by this time, and they, they had, before the regular game, they had an old-timers game. Now, this was kind of a trend they went through back in the 80s, where they would call, they would bring out famous baseball players who had long since outgrown the game, who were, who were way past the, the ability to play professionally, and they'd come play a little, a little exhibition for you to see. Now, this was really fun for me because I was kind of a sports nerd and I'd I'd read about these guys before. But even better, I got to sit by my dad during that game and every time somebody would get up, he'd tell me a story about them because he'd grown up watching these guys. And at one point, I mean, most of these guys were in their 50s or so, uh, so not really ancient since I'm almost 50 now. They're, you know, they're practically in the prime of their lives. But... um, But then they called a new pitcher, and he was well into his 70s. He was quite a bit older than these guys, and his name was Bob Feller. And I'd heard of Bob Feller before. Um, But when he got up to the mound in, you know, this beautiful silver hair and and his tight uh, Cleveland Indians uniform, my dad said, now he's my favorite pitcher ever. And that kind of surprised me because my dad grew up rooting for the Yankees, you know, being in the era before there were Texas teams, you got to choose someone but he liked Bob Feller. So that made me curious, and I did some research. And here's what I found out about Bob Feller, I think why my dad admired him. Bob Feller was an Iowa farm boy. He was drafted into the major leagues, actually became a major league pitcher at the age of 17, if you can imagine. Um, By the time he was 23, he'd won 107 games. If you're not into baseball, that's really good, okay? Um, 
At 23, he was the best there was and had unlimited potential. And then something happened that changed his life and the lives of many others. The Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. And Bob Feller left Major League Baseball and enlisted in the, in the U.S. Navy. Many others did this, but he spent four years in the Navy. The duration of the U.S. involvement in the war, he was, for the most part, on the USS Alabama. He, he fought in combat missions, uh, put himself in harm's way. Uh, when the war was over, he came home, he resumed his career, and is today in the Hall of Fame. But most baseball historians will tell you, if he would have stayed out of the war, certainly no one would have compelled him. He could have pitched from the age of 23 to 27, the prime years of his life, and he could have set records that would never be broken. He would be easily remembered as the best pitcher in the history of the game. Someone asked him once, Mr. Feller, do you wish that you had not gone to war and instead had pitched and enjoyed those years at home? He said, no, I've made a lot of mistakes in life, but that's not one of them. And it's hard for us today to imagine a professional athlete making a decision like that. And yet, some of you know this, about a decade ago, a professional football player, a guy named Pat Tillman, left the NFL, the Arizona Cardinals, where he played, and enlisted in the Army and was sent to Afghanistan and actually died in combat. Pat Tillman gave up even more than Bob Feller. Not only did he give up his life, but at the, at the, in the era he played, Athletes made millions. We're, our society is so twisted. We pay millions to people who play a kid's game. Here's the thing. What they did from the perspective of the world seems all wrong. Why would you give up? Why would you give up millions of dollars? Why would you give up a chance at immortality, or at least our version of immortality? Why would you give up everything that you've worked for and dreamed of with no promise of any reward. In fact, the very real promise that you could lose your life. And what I call that is strategic losing. The choice, the choice you make to lose something important to yourself for the sake of others. And I think that's the key to what humility really looks like. Humility, again, is not thinking lowly of yourself. It's not thinking of yourself at all. It's putting others first. Let's look at what Paul says about it in Philippians 2. This is, for me, the classic passage of Scripture about this subject, and it's about Jesus, the greatest hero of all. He says, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross." Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Note the things that he says in verses 3 and 4 as he 
basically outlines what humility looks like. He's, he's commanding friends. He's telling them, this is how you should live. And he says, don't do anything out of selfishness or empty conceit. He's saying, your motivation for what you do should never be, this benefits me. How radical is that? That's why we make decisions, isn't it? I do this because it makes my life easier. I do this because it makes my life more comfortable. I do this because it puts me on top. Paul says, no, that should never be your dominant criteria for a decision. He says, regard one another as more important than yourself. How am I ever going to get ahead if I do that? How am I ever going to get vengeance on those who hurt me if I do that? Paul says, forget about that. Put them first. And then he says, don't simply look out for your own needs, but look out for the needs of others. Believe me, the Bible is not against us caring for ourselves. Jesus, his most famous command was, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. You can't really love your neighbor if you don't care for who you are and, and meet your own needs. Jesus, command, or, or Paul in, in Ephesians 5, commanded husbands, love your wives the way you love your own body and take care of it. God knows that we're going to love ourselves, and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But he says, don't be focused on your own needs. Think of the needs of others. Put them first. That's strategic losing. And I say strategic losing. Why? Because it's a choice that we make. We are born and bred to win, to get what we want, to come out on top. Some of us are better at it than others, but all of us want that. That's what we desire out of life. And humility goes against that. Humility says, I'm going to choose to lose. I'm going to choose to give up something that I want for the sake of someone else. Now, it's also strategic because sometimes we don't lose. Sometimes we choose to win. Sometimes we choose to fight to the death. If your family is in trouble, your loved ones are in danger, you have the permission of God and me, if that matters, to fight to the death, to do what you have to do to protect them. When we witness injustice, someone has to stand up for those who are being oppressed, and that's our job. And it's not time to give up. It's time to fight. When the core doctrines of our faith are under attack, we have to stand up for what is true, no matter the consequences. And if I can, if I can be as basic as possible, if you're a competitive person, and you hate to lose, whether it's a pickup game of basketball in your backyard or you're playing go fish with your next door neighbor and you hate to lose, there's nothing wrong with that. Your competitive nature is fine. It's certainly a good thing to do your best in the classroom or at work or even on the golf course or wherever you happen to be competing or doing what you're called to do. There's nothing wrong with that. What I'm saying is when it comes to your preferences, when it comes to your reputation, when it comes to your feelings, your quote-unquote rights, you and I, you and I, if we're followers of Jesus Christ, we ought to be in the consistent habit of saying, I'm not really worried about that. What I'm worried about is you. What I'm worried about is is that person over there. What I'm worried about is the name of God being magnified and glorified in me. And if that means I have to take a hit here or there, that's okay. That's my job. I'm privileged to do that. The question is why? Because the honest truth is what I'm telling you about here is not the way to become rich and successful. It's certainly not the way to become powerful and, and feared. In fact, if you follow the path of humility, you're very unlikely to become wealthy, although some humble people are. 
And you're certainly very unlikely to become powerful or feared. What I'm saying is praying for humility every day. Praying, God, make me more humble. God, teach me to see people the way you do and to see myself the way you do and to not think of myself constantly. Teach me humility. What I'm talking about is people in this room, people in this very room right now saying to themselves, there's this dispute I have with my neighbor. There's this dispute I have with my sibling, with my spouse, with my coworker. And it's time for me to go to that person and say, listen, all cards on the table, I've done you wrong. And not expect anything in return. Just, I'm laying myself before you. Can we make this right? I repent of what I've done. There are people in this room who need to come forward. I mean, not come forward, but come before the Lord and say, Lord, I have been a jerk. I've been a pig-headed jerk. I've been so stubborn on this one particular issue, and it's caused all kinds of problems. It's time for me to strategically lose so that your name can be glorified. I've been a thorn in the side of my church family because I have to win, because I have to get my way. I have been a pain in the rear to my own loved ones because I can't admit that I was wrong. There are people in this room who, if you take this message seriously, it's going to impact your life in a very practical, painful, but ultimately liberating way. And again, the question is why? I'm already telling you it's not easy. So why should you pursue this path? Why should you become, why should you seek humility and strategically lose when we're bred and born to win? Three reasons, and it's right here in this passage. Number one, because it brings harmony to our relationships when we do. When we choose humility, when we seek the path of humility, it blesses every relationship we have. You know, the letter of Philippians, people who study Scripture will tell you it's the happiest book in the Bible, and there's a reason for that. Paul is writing. He's in prison as he writes this letter. He's basically writing a thank you note. This is the longest thank you note ever written. He's writing to his friends at a church he started in a a town called Philippi because they're in prison. He's received a gift from them, some kind of a financial gift to bless his life. And he's now writing to say, hey, thank you. You have blessed me. You have encouraged me in my moment of darkness. And yet in the midst of this, he's only got one criticism of them. There's a dispute within the Philippian church. There are these two women in the church who are at odds with each other. And in chapter four, he talks about it. These two women are angry with each other and everybody's choosing up sides. And most of us have been there, right? Maybe in your your little gang of friends when you were in high school, there was a dispute between two of you and everybody chose up sides. Maybe at the office, Bob and Bill don't get along and and everybody's like, hey, whose side are you on? Well, I'm on Bob's side because did you hear what Bill said to him? And no, no, I'm on Bill's side because Bob had it coming. You've seen it happen. You've seen it happen in churches. Sad to say, in some churches, it's two staff members who can't get along, and everybody chooses up sides. Two deacons, two life group leaders. In the Philippian church, it was these two ladies who were key members of that congregation. And Paul talks to them in chapter 4, but first in chapter 2, he, he lays the groundwork by saying, listen, be of one mind with one another. Verse 2 talks about it. Verse 2, he says, make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in the Spirit, and of one mind. That phrase, of one mind, is something that's repeated in many of the letters of the New Testament. And I love it. But let me tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean we all have to be the same. See, one of the great things about the church 
and I say that capital C, I'm not talking about First Baptist Conroe, I'm talking about the church at large, is there's all kinds of people in it. In every local church I've been a part of, there have been people who are very different. There have been people who are extremely introverted, who, who you could barely have a conversation with because they were so private, and other people who just broadcast everything. There have been people who were just rough and ready outdoorsman types who liked to kill and gut deer and, and people, on the other hand, who were just so refined and, and they wouldn't harm a fly. And there are people who, who, who voted uh, cons- extremely conservative and people who voted cons- extremely liberal. And there were people who were all kinds of different folks with different priorities and different personalities, people who wouldn't get along in regular life, people who probably wouldn't even like each other, and yet... They're in the same church. Why? Because the same Savior died for them. And they're willing to say, you know, you and I don't agree on a lot, but we agree on the most important things, so I'm going I'm to love you. And I'm going to treat you with kindness, and we're going to make this relationship work. And that's not just in the church, by the way. I heard a man once who had been married 50 years, and someone asked him, What's the secret? How do you stay married that long? And he said, well, one, one sentence, never win a fight. And people laughed because they thought what he was saying was, well, always let her have her way and you'll be married a long time. But that's not what he was saying. He was saying, I love this woman. Therefore, when we disagree, she and I both, instead of trying to come out on top, we're going to say, you're more important to me than whatever it is we're arguing about. I'm willing to take less than what I want so that you and I can continue to get along. And that's love. And if you've ever been married and you're still married, you know what that's like. You know what it's like to say, I don't have to win. We can find a way where we're both okay, where we can move on together. And that's true in every relationship, in your friendships. That's true in, in, in your parenting, if you're a parent. That's true in your work relationships, where you just say to yourself, I'm going to choose not to win. I'm going to choose not to rub your face in what I think you've done wrong. I'm going to choose to take less than what I want right now in this dispute because I care about you. Because whatever we're arguing about is not essential to who I am in Christ. Ultimately, it's not a big deal. Okay, so you called me some bad words. I can get over that. You should, you should hear the things I thought about you. It's, it's going to be okay. You make it work. And you know what I've found? When you practice this and you experience harmony in your relationships, the peace that you feel is amazing. Now, I know there are, there are people in this room that live in constant conflict. And you're kind of trapped in a cycle where you feel like, I have to be this way. This is just the way life is. I'm telling you there's a better way. And it will be painful at first because it's going to go against your nature. You're going to have to let people feel like they've won. But on the other side of it, you're going to look back and go, why did I fight about all these things that were so ridiculous? It's so much better to have harmony in your relationships. To be able to say, like Romans 12 says, If possible, as far as it depends upon me, there is peace between me and all people. Second reason why you should pursue the path of humility, why you should strategically lose, because it follows the example of Jesus. Verses 5 through 11 are rather unique. It's one of a handful of sections of Paul's letters where it's in actual verse form. If you spoke Greek, which I don't, I took the class, but just barely passed, um, and don't remember much about it, but if you spoke Greek, 
you would know verses 5 through 11 are basically poetry. And this isn't Paul just uh, rhapsodizing or, 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 or spontaneously becoming poetic. He's quoting an early hymn. He's quoting something that early churches used to sing. And it's significant to see, here's what the early church sang about Jesus. It's beautiful stuff. Listen to what it says about Jesus. It says, first of all, in verse 6, he did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Think about that. Think about the power Jesus had. Here was a man who could take a, a, a child's lunch and feed 5,000 people with it. He, here's a man who could say a command and a storm would stop. Here's a man who could raise the dead. Now, let's be honest. If any one of us had that kind of power, we would be a fearsome thing to behold. We would, we would do some damage. You would not, I mean, even the gentlest person in here would not be able to keep themselves from punishing someone who had done them wrong in a supernatural way. Even the most selfless person in this room would not, would not be able to resist helping themselves gain an advantage here or there. And yet here's Jesus who had that power for his whole life, who never once conjured up some food for himself to eat, even in the desert when he'd been fasting for 40 days, who never once poured out vengeance upon his enemies, even when they spat in his face as he hung dying for their sins. He didn't use his power to his own advantage. Secondly, it says in verse 7, he took on the form of a servant. Here is Jesus Christ, the God of the universe, and he becomes a servant. That word servant is a, is a Greek word, doulos, that literally means slave. You know the difference between a servant and a slave? A servant, if he doesn't like the pay he's getting from you, he can go to someone else. If Lord Grantham has a better deal for him, he'll go work for him, right? Instead of you. But a slave belongs to you for life. He doesn't have a choice. And that's what Jesus says. He says, I don't have a choice with you. I'm choosing, I'm choosing to give myself to you completely. There's not a better deal out there. And it's, it doesn't matter how bad you mess up. I'm yours. I'm your Savior. Verse 8, it says, He was obedient to death, even death on a cross. Why does it say even death on a cross? None of us, thank God, has ever seen a crucifixion, but Paul had. He'd seen many of them. Everybody reading this had. The Romans reserved crucifixion for the worst of the worst. In fact, it was illegal for a Roman citizen to be crucified. You could, you could try to assassinate Caesar and you wouldn't be crucified if you were Roman because it was such an awful death, the Romans said, we can't do this to one of our own people. They used it to make an example of others. So if someone, for instance, was a revolutionary, had this little cult following, you nail them to a cross and strip them naked and let them hang there writhing for hours, even days, no one's going to see them as heroic anymore. Their dignity is gone. Their pride is gone. They are simply brought to the bottom of humanity at their moment of death. And that's what they did to Jesus. Actually, that's what Jesus submitted himself to. When it says that Jesus emptied himself, what does that mean? It doesn't mean he gave up his godhood. He was still just as much God it means he strategically lost. He gave up every advantage that there was of being the Son of God. He lost it all so that we could win. It was a strategic decision on his part. 
We may be angry at Judas for selling him out. We may be angry at Pontius Pilate and the Romans for nailing him to that cross, but it was his decision. He laid down his life willingly for us. He lost so that we could win. He died so that we could live. He experienced hell so that we can have heaven and eternal life with him. Now, how often do you love selflessly? Be honest. Some of us this last week, we got to go and, and serve our neighbors, and it was hard work, and it was difficult, and we felt really good about ourselves, didn't we? I mean, let's, let's face it. I, we're in church. We can, we can be honest. We went home that night, and we thought, man, I'm a really good guy. Look at all the good stuff I did today. But that's the way we should live every day. My hope is that we won't look back in years to come and say, hey, remember back in the, in the, in the late summer of 17 when I, you know, I spent like five hours doing unselfish things for people in need? I hope instead it's the beginning of a new way for us to live where we say every day, what can I do for others? How can I serve you? How can I be the hands and the feet of Christ? Because can I confess something to you? I'm married to a woman who is great and I adore her and she's the best thing that ever happened to me besides Jesus, but I do everything I possibly can do to get out of serving that woman. I mean, if there's something I know that she needs or would be a benefit to her, I'm constantly strategizing, plug your ears, I'm constantly strategizing ways to not do it. You know, I'm like, okay, maybe if I just kind of look busy, she won't ask me to help her. Or maybe if I just look stressed or annoyed, she'll be like, okay, he's got too much on his plate. Um, and, and it's always something little. It's like, hey, would you come and, and shop for, for curtains with me? And, and that's nothing. And if I do it, nine times out of ten, I do it with a horrible mood. I'm like, I want you to know, woman, how big a sacrifice this is. I mean... North Dakota Southeast Tech is playing, you know, the School for the Blind on TV right now, and I could be watching that. What the heck do I know about curtains anyway? And that's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about here is Jesus who's, who, who didn't say, hey, everybody, you watching this? I'm about to do something really great for you. You better remember this. No, he, he laid down his life. Knowing that most of us would hear about it and say, so what? He laid down his life knowing that for the most part, he wouldn't get anything out of it. And he did it anyway. Joyfully, Hebrews 12 says, joyfully gave his life for us. So every time we choose the path of humility, we're following his example and we're becoming just a little bit more like him. And then there's a third reason. Because God exalts the humble. The last verse of that, that Christological hymn that's found in chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, it talks about the result of Jesus' sacrifice and it says at the very end, He's going to be the, the one everyone bows down to. Jesus gave up everything. The man who never sought anything for himself is the one who in the end wins everything. And when it says, by the way, when it says that therefore God has exalted him, it doesn't mean that Jesus was somebody lowly who God made into the king of the universe. He was the king of the universe and he gave all that up. And at the end, he gains it all back plus every single one of us who chooses to accept his grace. 
And for him, that was enough. For him, that was all the promise he needed. There's a chance, there's a chance that some of these people I love will spend eternity with me, and so this is worth it. 1 Peter 5, 5 through 6 says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. Jesus often told his disciples the same thing. Hey, don't try to lord over your power over those who serve you. Instead, be the least, be the servant. The greatest among you is the one who serves the most. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. He often said, in fact, I think it's his most common saying in the Gospels, the first will be last and the last will be first. Strategically losing leads to greatness. And let me explain what I mean by greatness. What does the term exalt mean? It doesn't mean that if I'm really, really humble now, someday I'll be in charge of some big corporation. That's not the promise. Maybe that's God's calling on your life, but if so, you're one of the rare ones. Exalted means God holds you up and says, check this one out. She gets it. Look at her. Look at her life. Don't you want to have what she has? And it's not because you have a bigger bank account necessarily or because you've achieved some earthly thing. It's because you'll have a joy and a harmony about your life and, a, and a, just a, an attractiveness that people will say, why don't I have that? Here I've been knocking myself out to get ahead and here's this person who never seems to think of herself and she's got the joy that I've been missing all this time. And isn't it true? Haven't you noticed that the people we tend to admire and put on magazine covers and we obsess over the daily details of their life, that they're the unhappiest people in the world? Isn't it true that these people who, who've achieved everything that we dream of when we're kids, they're miserable? Not because they're bad people, but because the world tells you lies about what success looks like. I've got one more story to kind of illustrate that for you, but let me, let, me just, let me just challenge you. Think about what does humility look like for me? What does it look like for me to come before the Lord and say, I want to become this kind of person. I want to, I want to strategically lose. I want to give up something to glorify you. Again, that may be for you, it may be reconciling with someone who you're at odds with. It may be that you need to do what we did this last week consistently. Make it a point of your life that every day you go out and serve someone else's needs. That's a good habit to start. It may just be waking up in the morning and saying, Lord, just humble me. Teach me to think of others first. There were these two men a long time ago who worked for the same religious organization. And although you would think their values would be the same, their personalities were completely different. Their styles, their, their values. Uh, the first guy was very loyal. He was very well-intentioned, very earnest, but he was extremely rough around the edges. He was well-known for saying the wrong thing. He would constantly get in over his head, bite off more than he could chew and embarrass himself. The leader was always having to correct him. Uh, sometimes he embarrassed the whole group. But because of his loyalty, because of his willingness to do whatever the leader said, he was given great responsibility. The second man was entirely different. He was, he was very intelligent. He was very bold. He was very ambitious. 
He had plans and dreams. He made himself the treasurer. He, he took on the money purse of the organization because he knew that's where the real power lies. And he disagreed often with the leader. He had plans to make that organization larger and more successful and more influential in society. And once he realized that the leader really wasn't interested, didn't have those same ambitions, he pulled the right strings and got that leader tossed out so he would be gone forever. And you look at those two men and the world would look at those two and they would say that the first guy was, well, he was a loser. He was a sycophant. He was one of those guys who just sort of hangs around greatness but never becomes great. And the second guy, he had the potential for real greatness. He was going somewhere. And that should tell you something about the values of this world and why not to buy into them because the first guy I told you about was named Peter and the second guy was named Judas. Judas. 